is a dash of science. I'm your host, Chris. If you're listening, then it must be because you're ready to head face first into the world of science, engineering, medicine, and technology. Each week, we delve deep into the realm of science, wrestle it to the ground, put it in a chokehold, and otherwise beat it into submission so that you, our listeners, can get the answers to questions you didn't even know you had. So sit back, relax, and get ready to have your science socks blown off with a dash of science. Hey everyone, welcome back to another awesome episode. Coming up, I have a great discussion for you with Dr. Anna Dornhouse, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. But before that, I just want to chat a little bit about some other items that are going on. So first off, I'll be heading out Sunday, April 8th to Las Vegas, the NAB show where content comes to life, as they say. Uh, This is the annual convention held by the National Association of Broadcasters, and while I'm attending this for my real-life pay-the-bills job, I did find out that the wonderful group Podcast Movement will be having a meetup. So if you're listening and you are, for whatever reason, going to be in that meetup or around the convention, going to the convention, whatever, and want want to meet up and talk science engineering or just say hi hit me up at the facebook group facebook.com slash dash of science and if i can i certainly will next up is a short notice but i just got the info myself and i really wanted to pass it along for anybody that might be able to take advantage of the opportunity so something really cool spotify and their move to continue and increase support for podcasters will be hosting a week-long program for aspiring female podcasters of color they're covering all expenses of a five-day workshop including travel to new york city six nights of hotel and meal vouchers for breakfast and lunch the 10 finalists will then have the opportunity to pitch their podcast with the top three landing their pilot funded up to $10,000. The deadline for this application is April 10th, which, yes, I know, is the day after my show releases. I apologize for that. Again, I got the info last minute, and I just wanted to push it out to you in hopes that uh, somebody out there will have the opportunity to take advantage of this, because this is a pretty amazing deal. Anyways, the link will be in the description, as well as on Twitter, at Physicist Chris, and on our Facebook page. In some other news, if you are a fan of the National Air and Space Museum, which... Of course you are, because the air and space is pretty much awesome. Uh, Just a few days ago, they announced that the planetary geologist Dr. Ellen Stofan has been selected as the new John Adrian Mars Director of the National Air and Space Museum. Dr. Stofan is currently consulting scientists at the John Hopkins Physics Laboratory and was previously a chief scientist for NASA. So from all of us at Dash of Science, best of luck and looking forward to see what you can bring to a great organization. So anyone paying attention to the news probably heard about the Chinese space lab Xiangong-1 deorbiting on April 1st. It burned up in the atmosphere over the Pacific Ocean. Uh, It wasn't an April Fool's joke, it really happened, but the media coverage of it sure seemed to be. See, I get news headlines through an aggregator that takes news articles from numerous different sources and aggregates together so I can browse through the list and see if there's anything that I want to talk about this particular uh, show that's coming up or whatever. And it was particularly interesting to see how much your news source can change not only the context of a story, but the facts themselves. Sarah Lewin of Space US writes an article entitled, How Was China's Shigong-1 Space Station Crash-Tracked So Accurately? Immediately following in the list was an article in Futurism by Claudia Glebe. 
I think that's how you pronounce that, which reads, The Chinese space station has crashed in the Pacific. Why was it so hard to track? So one article asks, How did we track it so accurately? And another one says, Why was it so hard to track? Now, maybe there's some weird wordplay items we can come up with to make both of them accurate, but I think we can all agree that these two articles portray two vastly different scenarios. So I guess I just want to let this be a reminder for everybody to check numerous outlets for articles that you're reading and weigh them appropriately along with the validity of the source itself. Well, that's it for this week's roundup. Let's get into the discussion with Dr. Dornhaus and the evolution of intelligence. Right. Hey, everybody. I'm here with Dr. Anna Dornhaus, professor at the University of Arizona for Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. All right. And how long have you been doing that for? Um, so I started here at the University of Arizona um, in 2005, but I really have been working on similar topics um, pretty much since graduate school in the late 90s. <laughs> and what was it that you actually graduated in? Um, so I, I got my... A master's degree and my PhD from the University of Würzburg in Germany uh, in a department called Behavioral Physiology and Sociobiology. And that whole okay. department was, um, the department head was Bert Holderbler, who's um, now at ASU, and he's kind of a famous ant um, behavior scientist. And so mm -hmm. uh, at the time, what I was studying was um, first bumblebee and then honeybee behavior and specifically communication inside the nest. So I was interested in social insects as organizations and how uh, communication and information flow enables them to perform more efficiently as groups. Okay. Yeah, I was thought that was interesting because when I was uh, kind of looking into your research background, a lot of stuff on, you know, on bees and ants and kind of communications and, and information and, you know, mm -hmm. hive and colony mentality and all that kind of stuff. And how I actually found you was an article that we're here to talk about today called Aliens Are Likely to be Intelligent but Not Sentient and What Evolution of Cognition on Earth Tells Us About Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And I thought it was kind of interesting to come from that background to write an article. Can you kind of tell me how that happened? Um, yeah. So, I mean, specifically the article happened because I was invited um, to participate in this symposium um, organized by Doug um, Vekoch. He um, now leads uh, METI, this um, organization that's split off from SETI. So SETI is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and METI is the um, idea of messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. Um, it's basically based on the premise that, well, we would like to make contact with extraterrestrial intelligences if there are any out there. And um, SETI relies on just trying to find the signals that they might be sending but we know that if any exist, they might be many light years away from us, uh, maybe thousands mm -hmm. or even millions of light years. And so um, th whatever their signals are, they might take a long time to get to us and we might speed up the communication or increase the chance of finding anyone if we actually sent our own signals so that the, the okay. these potential aliens could receive them and maybe react to it. Now, that's, that's all about METI and what that is, but basically in the process of the inception of this new idea of METI, um, Doug um, organized this symposium in Puerto Rico, and he invited me, um, among other biologists who study different animals, for example, octopi, or octopuses, I think it is, <laughs> um, and, and other, um, other scientists studying other forms of communication just to get sort of broad perspectives on how 
you know, how messaging to an intelligence that we don't know anything about might work and what, what we should keep in mind in that context. And that's, that's the context in which I wrote that book chapter. <laughs> and so, okay. Um, okay, so my, you know, and I was thinking about aliens and what we would know about the intelligence based on my own research. Now, as you said, my own research is really on social insects and how communication works in groups. And most of my work is on just this aspect of group coordination. But I have also worked on just evolution of intelligence in insects. So I've studied bumblebees in how they make decisions, how they learn, how they choose flowers. Um, bees among insects and actually generally among animals are actually uh, known for being very good learners. They can learn all kinds of things. They can learn times and places and combina combinations of times and places. And they can learn when it's worth learning. They can learn whether a particular source of information is reliable. So they have all kinds of pretty sophisticated uh, learning and information processing abilities. And based on that and my knowledge of other such um, you know, cognitive abilities in other animals, um, basically my central point of that book chapter was to say, well, if life evolves anywhere, um, it's pretty likely to evolve to be intelligent in the bee sense. So intelligent in the sense that mm -hmm. any living thing uh, learns something. <laughs> so even for microbes, um, <laughs> you know, even microbes right. can often learn things. Now, the degree of the complexity of the learning ability and the degree to which um, information is processed in more complex ways varies a lot. But there are just objective right. reasons why in some situations it's good to evolve more sophisticated <laughs> uh, learning <Right>. or information <laughs> processing. And um, biology actually understands pretty well what those situations are. For example, for generalist foragers, so any animal that's very flexible about what it will eat and is very willing to try new food sources, which bees are one mm -hmm. example of that. Rats are another example of that. Um, it just pays for them to be good learners. And, uh, you know, research and evolution has shown again and again that if there's a need for some trait, uh, certainly learning or information processing, then animals will evolve it. So it seems on Earth mm -hmm. anyway, <laughs> easy to evolve learning ability. It seems easy to evolve, um, you know, not just kind of simple statistical associative, uh, association learning, but um, even fairly sophisticated. Uh, judgment about whether information is useful or not and things like that. So I think um, if aliens evolved anywhere, <laughs> if, if any kind of alien life evolved somewhere, even just microbes initially, um, it's likely mm -hmm. that eventually there would be environments in which being a generalist forager might be um, a useful strategy. And if that evolved, it would be likely that something would evolve that has sophisticated learning mechanisms, just like bees or rats or many other animals on earth. <laughs> so okay. did you, did you ever think uh, before you got invited to the symposium about applying the information that you've spent your career learning and developing to aliens? Was that ever uh, something that crossed your mind before this point? Um, no, I'm not honestly not. <laughs> um, of course, <laughs> you know, when you're in, in, when you're studying evolutionary biology and you're thinking about why things are the way they are, why did bees evolve this ability and, and well, bumblebees, are pretty intelligent and then some solitary bees are actually pretty uh, fixed in their behaviors. They maybe only visit one type of flower. So as an evolutionary biologist, you try to understand these patterns. You try to understand why is one animal intelligent and the other one isn't. And there are many studies like mm -hmm. that inside in insects as well as in other animals. 
So that was naturally yeah. something I was already interested in. And, and evolutionary biologists often talk about what would happen if we rewound the tape of life. So what, what we mean by that, this, this metaphor doesn't even make sense anymore today because nobody has tapes. But I hope you can, <laughs> you can imagine the idea is, well, if we went back in time, but not just in a fixed timeline, but if there was a parallel world <laughs> that started from that point, would, in fact, the outcome be the exact same as in our world today? Or could the outcome have been something different? Right. So as evolutionary biologists, we think about that question often. And usually it's mm -hmm. meant to be sort of a thought experiment. And it's meant to be a statement about probabilities and uh, was this an inevitable outcome or was this something that really was just a contingency where historically some events happened together and that happened to direct the world <laughs> in a certain way. Right. Right. And generally, there are many things in evolution where we think everything depended on particular contingencies. Right. So uh, Stephen Jay Gould got famous with a book um, called Wonderful Life about um, this large diversity of animal body plants that existed in the Cambrian, most of which went extinct and only a few survived. And that's the basis for all the animals we know today. And he was making the mm -hmm. argument, well, we don't really know what led to the extinction of the other ones, but maybe it was just some random process. And maybe if, if this whole thing happened again, maybe somebody else would go extinct and the animals that are left over would be totally different from the ones we know now. So he was a strong proponent of this argument that there's a lot of contingencies and just randomness in what the outcome of evolution is. Yeah, that's a good point because it also can depend on, I mean, kind of like what you're saying in the environment in which you're, you're evolving, right? Like what sort of uh, select, selection pressure there is that exists there on whether or not that happens. I, it's kind of interesting because you're talking about in the article about it not necessarily being like a natural selection that resulted in what you refer to as exaggerated intelligence, but, you know, something like, you know, sexual selection, that it just happens to be something that's, you know, attractive to the mate of that species. So it's kind of interesting. If it, is that something that we see in across species, like in like bees and in ants, is that something that you see a, a similar, a sexual uh, selection process? So the answer is no. Um, we, we don't see a sexual selection for intelligence at least not the way that we see in humans anywhere else, which is why mm -hmm. it's somewhat controversial, right? It's not clear that that's really what it is, but it's a plausible contender. And the very characteristic of sexual selection is that it leads to these idiosyncratic sort of arbitrary outcomes, right? The peacock's tail or the bird of paradise or the song of a nightingale, right? Nobody sings like a nightingale. Right. <laughs> Nobody has a tail like a peacock. <laughs> and that's precisely because there's nothing about natural selection that made that trait what it is. Because if a trait is shaped by natural selection, this is what I was saying about the sort of regular intelligence. If a trait is shaped by natural right. selection, a bunch of animals are bound to have a similar trait in the end because they live in similar environments, or at least the aspect of the environment that matters is similar for them. So a bunch of animals can learn a bunch mm -hmm. of animals can learn from other animals, right? A bunch of animals can recognize color or remember time. Right. Um because they just all they, these are traits that are shaped by natural selection. But for sexual selection, all that really really matters is that you have a trait. Um it's even called a runaway process, kind of like an arms race where there is this positive feedback process of some trait becoming more and more exaggerated and the more exaggerated it is the more exaggerated it becomes so this positive feedback mm -hmm. process can lead you basically anywhere and 
the right. mating mind hypothesis that was advocated by Geoffrey Miller um, is exactly that the human intelligence is like a peacock's tail, that it's this exaggerated um, trait that has no basis in natural selection. There's no um, environmental factor that particularly promotes it. It's just that um, it happened to be the trait that sexual selection focused on, like the tail and the peacock. And then it ended up with this really unusual outcome. That is crazy to think about how something like, I mean, it's almost random, really. I mean, if we look at at what a society finds attractive, I mean, it's really cultural. So it's not even species wide necessarily, or even, you know, across all time, it can be, you know, dependent upon the specific time in an era, right? On what is considered attractive in that nature. Well, that's a very human thing to say. And and a sociologist, of course, would probably agree. But I'm actually not sure that that's true. I think it depends really on what do you interpret to be the important part or how general you want to make your statement? So is it, mm-hmm. you know, should the skirts be knee height or should they be, should they cover the knee? Right. That part is cultural. So, um, you know, is it really true that at, what is attractive is not a human wide species trait? So yeah, you're right. There are cultural things like, should you cut your hair or not? Or is your skirt, uh, is the most attractive skirt one that covers the knee or not? Those are cultural things that change over fairly short time spans and fairly short geographical mm-hmm. distances. But how people flirt, how long you can look at somebody before it's either flirting or aggressive, how um, is it attractive if somebody has humor? Is somebody more attractive when they're laughing? Um, Is healthy skin attractive? (laughs) Um, Is fertility attractive? These are actually all things that people who are um, studying different cultures find over and over again that are pretty universal. Um, And if you look at animals... Hmm, That's interesting. you know, there are similar similar things that are just genetically genetic um, preferences for mates um, that often have to do with just general overall health, you know, indicators of strength. That doesn't necessarily mean muscle strength, but just ability to acquire resources, mm-hmm. you know, s- signs that the individual is fertile. Um, and across different species, it varies what those signs are. Like in birds, it's good, uh, colorful feathers. <laughs> and in humans, it's healthy hair and healthy skin right but those things are attractive across the world and honestly humor is attractive right. across the world too and so the point is when you know people talk about physical attractiveness all the time but when you actually look at who people have um, children with which is the only thing that matters from a biology standpoint people have children with other right. people for their brain traits more than their physical traits right they 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 like people who have a lot of money maybe but um, that could depend on brain traits as much as anything else. <laughs> and people like people who are generous <laughs> and people like people who are humorous, who have good ability, good emotional intelligence, right? These are all things that you actually care about when choosing a mate. Okay. Well, let's kind of switch tracks here a little bit. Are you familiar at all with the Drake equation? Uh, yes, I am. All right. So with the Drake equation, for those who don't know, it's it's a, a, a probability kind of argument about a guesstimation of the number of civilized uh, societies out there that we might be able to make contact with within the Milky Way. And there's uh, about seven terms. And one of those is the basically the percentage of planets that develop that can create life that actually turn into intelligent life. And this is a number that is kind of argued about. And I thought it was interesting with your take on it, because it seems to be kind of similar to uh, biologist Ernest Mayer, I think his mm-hmm. name is, uh, who who really supports like a low value of this because of kind of what you said that uh, this 
exaggerated intelligence is just kind of an act of, you know, I don't want to call it necessarily an accident, but it's random. It's not guaranteed. It's, it's not necessarily because, like you say, we don't see this develop a lot in species on our Earth. Uh, but then there's this other side that says, well, you know, as we evolve, we kind of have a tendency to become more complex uh, creatures. And so intelligent life is, you know, that almost approaches a one because of kind of the inevitability due, due to that increasing complexity. Now, I know with evolution, a more evolved creature doesn't necessarily mean a more complex creature. But in general, what do you think of that statement? Uh, I think of it what you said, which is that it's not true. I mean, evolution does not proceed towards complexity. <laughs> this is a big discussion in biology, and you might find the occasional person that argues with it. But in general, most biologists agree that there's nothing inherent to evolution that makes it move any particular animal group towards complexity. And in addition to that, it's mm -hmm. not clear what complexity even means, right? But uh, what we as humans consider intelligence, right, we don't see any animal group moving towards that. Um, and right. we're not sure that we're moving, like, you know, this is, this is almost the societal comment rather than biological one, but what, what is the evidence that humans are in some way linearly advancing that, that just, we don't have that evidence, I think. So, um, mm -hmm. I think from a biologist point of view or an evolutionary biologist point of view, there's no requirement for life to move towards complexity and there's no requirement for complex life to be intelligent okay. so and you know as i was arguing in the chapter well how do you calculate probabilities in general usually the way we calculate probabilities is either by repeating the event right if you uh if you throw the dice or whatever or you throw your coin um you don't do it once you do it a hundred times in order to calculate the probability of getting heads right and we only have one earth mm -hmm. so we can't actually repeat the event <laughs> in order to calculate the probability <laughs> that intelligent life would evolve. But, uh, but right. you know, the, the other two ways to having any hope of calculating probability rather than just guessing um, on Earth are to either talk about the time that it took for intelligence to appear or the time that it took for steps in complexity to appear, for example, or to talk about, mm -hmm. well, among the life on Earth, how often did this happen? Right. If you and Ernst right. Meyer's argument is, well, among the life on Earth, <laughs> how often did it happen? Well, it happened once out of about, you know, depending on what you think, how many species on Earth there are, maybe 10 million or 100 million species. Right. So that's a low number right there. Um, and then if you're talking about time, um, well, the first, um, depending on who you ask, but either half or three quarters of the lifespan of Earth, we really had nothing but. Uh, microbes on it, right? So for incredibly right. long amounts of time, way longer than we've had animals or plants or anything like that, uh, there was no approach. Right. Um, there was no movement towards greater complexity in the sense that a human would probably think of it. Um, so sure, those microbes underwent some various different innovations with, you know, whether they could breathe oxygen or not and um, sort of some sophistication inside the cell of how things are made, but um, those are all pretty minor compared to what people think of when they think of intelligent aliens, right? So <laughs> it, it took a really long time. It did yeah. not take long for life to appear, right? So we had life almost immediately. Right. So the step from non-living planet to planet with microbes on it 
seems easy and therefore probable because it didn't take long in the one case that we know of, <laughs> mm -hmm. which is Earth. But the step towards anything that resembles intelligence, even B-level intelligence, <laughs> took a really long time. And the step to human intelligence took almost the entire time there was. <laughs> right. And you have to have nothing catastrophic go on in that time period. So I, I guess that's kind of the point of what you're saying because of how long it takes to the probability that it's actually going to happen on any particular uh, well, planet, right? that's another point that just if it did always take a fixed amount of time, then that would make it less likely just based on the fact that something catastrophic could happen. But that's actually not even what I meant. I just meant that if in any given year since the Earth cooled, um, there was a certain probability for intelligent life to evolve. <laughs> then if that probability mm -hmm. is really high, you would expect it to happen relatively quickly. If that probability is really low, you would right. expect it to happen after a really long time. Right. So if you wait long enough, okay. anything that has any probability is eventually going to happen, uh, even if that probability right. is very low. And you're asking, right, the Drake equation is about estimating what that probability is. And if you're trying to estimate a probability mm -hmm. and you know that the event that has that probability only happens about every 4 billion years, then the probability evidently is a very low probability, right? I guess that makes sense, yeah. It's something that you were saying earlier that I kind of thought was interesting because uh, in preparation for this interview, I was doing just some some research on some you know basic facts. One of those things I wanted to look at is how many species there exist on Earth. And I find it interesting that I got like legitimate responses from institutions that stay anywhere from 7.7 .7 million to... Uh, an estimated 2 billion species on earth. And uh, I didn't realize that we, we didn't know as much as we don't know, I guess, when it comes to that. Yeah. I mean, uh, the joke among entomologists is that you go to Brazil and you shake a tree and you can be sure that you can identify 15 new species. And that's not even, I mean, it's a joke, but it's not a joke, right? It's true. It's just that nobody bothers to actually right. do that because there's no credit in describing 50 new insect species. Um, but of course, entomology, you know, right. taxonomists, people who, who work on insects and who study taxonomy and who do this for a living, they do describe new species every once in a while. But for example, um, so since I started here in Arizona at the University of Arizona, I've known that there are several ant species in Arizona that are very similar to the one that I study that have not been officially named. So people know kind of that these new species exist mm -hmm. there. Here in Arizona, we're, you know, in the States, <laughs> you, you know, there's not super high population right. density, but there's researchers here, universities, whatever, um, and yet nobody has bothered to actually describe them formally. So this is part of the reason that such a low number of species has been described. Um, and the other reason is it's just sometimes hard to find okay. animals, right? I mean, it's you have to have somebody who actually goes into the wild places and, uh, you know, it's like filming planet Earth. They spend years in those places <laughs> ready, right. Right, <laughs> trying to wait for that one moment that will then make it into the final uh, movie. And there's just not a lot of money and glory in that so it doesn't happen that often right now do you think that that's at a detriment to science do you think there's a need to you know officially classify these species or do you think what you guys do just an acknowledgement that they exist kind of unofficially is perfectly fine for what i we're think doing? there needs to be a balance um i think it's actually important to describe as many species as we can in part because we're losing many of them in part um so for that would be sort of a philosophical argument, <laughs> and but there are also practical arguments. Very mm -hmm. often these species contain natural substances that might work great as drugs or other, um, you know, for other applications in engineering and so on. And it's a shame if we don't even know that right. they're there. We can't sample them. This is particularly true for plants more than animals. But um, 
but then also mm -hmm. from from a just basic science point of view if we want to understand for example evolution of intelligence or if we want to understand why there are so many insects and so few um vertebrates for example or we want to understand just generally how life works and we only actually ever glimpse a tenth of what life exists then of course any conclusions that we draw are somewhat limited in scope <laughs> so you know in, both in order to understand the world and in order to make the best use of natural substances and resources that exist in the world i think for both reasons it would be good to describe more of it um, at the same time taxpayers aren't willing to fund science to an unlimited amount and so i'm not saying that this should be the top priority of, above all else because we just have to compromise in how much we want to invest in describing um, the life that's there and then actually understanding it. So I think both things have to happen. But it's important to realize that, yes, we have not described the majority of species on Earth and uh, there may be some missed opportunity there. That is a sad, uh, you know, thing that's shared across all science. Unfortunately, you know, science at the end of the day costs money. We got to get that money from someplace. So it just comes down to almost uh, being good at prioritizing what the, the better benefit may be, unfortunately. I don't care about the state of art. Everything I care about is falling apart. Don't want to hear about the new design. I don't mind if I get left behind. Hello, I'm Carrie Poppy. And I'm Ross Blotcher, hosts of MaximumFun.org's Ono, Ross, and Carrie. We wanted to tell you the good news that our podcast is now weekly. Yeah, weekly. On Ono, Ross, and Carrie, we don't make extraordinary claims. We investigate them. We go undercover with fringe religious groups, investigate paranormal claims, and participate in pseudoscientific medical treatments and report our findings to you. In a time where alternative facts reign supreme, we cut through the murky spin to give you the real deal on topics like UFOs, the anti-vaccination movement, Scientology, and even apocalyptic churches. We're even undercover for some very exciting investigations right now. Well, not right now, right now. Yeah, that would be unwise. That's Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org. We show up so you don't have to. You're listening to A Dash of Science and our interview with Dr. Anna Dornhouse on the evolution of intelligence. Let's go ahead and get back to the conversation. So kind of what we talked about earlier with Earth being our only example is kind of interesting to consider because while on Earth we have all this life to compare to and humans are, as, as we've discussed, the only super intelligent you know, creature on this planet, but again, we don't have any other plants to compare to, so it's hard to say. So when we look at the past and we look at, like, say, uh, Neanderthals and other similar type species that may have been sort of sprouting off of forks of evolution at the same time and how they've kind of died out. I mean, do you think that that could be a similar process everywhere? Do you think there's something about super intelligence that that limits it to only one species per planet. So I know we're, we might be getting a little outside of your research field, right. here, but I'm just kind of curious um, your thoughts on that. I actually don't think that, um, you know, it, maybe it depends a little bit where you make the cutoff of super intelligence, but um, we certainly have had more than one human intelligence species on the planet at the same time. Um, so mm -hmm. um, it's actually not incredibly clear exactly when humans started having the type of intelligence that's really unique among all life on earth. So some people would argue as recently as 50,000 years ago, other people argue 
as long as two million years ago. <laughs> the the um, conservative estimate is maybe two hundred and fifty thousand years ago. That's not long in the in this you know in for an evolutionary biologist or a geologist. <laughs> um, and there right. are several human species that existed, for example, um, for uh, at least several million years concurrent with the line that eventually led to us. Um, and those species yeah. went extinct. And so it's actually mm-hmm. not that easy to find out how intelligent they were. I mean, at the minimum, we should estimate that they were at least as intelligent as chimpanzees. <laughs> um but the really unique human aspect, right, is human language and the degree of human tool making and innovation and jewelry making and stuff like that. Um, and it's possible that that's actually unique to our lineage. And it's possible that Neanderthals actually had all those properties as well. Um, so that is something that is, um, you're right, that's not my direct area of research. So I don't know what the very latest insight on that is. but. I know that it's at the very least still controversial. I don't see why there's, I don't think there's okay. anything inherent to that trait that makes it have to be the only one on the world, in the world. Um, and you have to remember that until very recently, humans and most other species were always restricted to particular geographic areas, right? So there would be lots of places in the world where another species could right. do something that would be totally independent of these other existing species. So for example, humans. Right until a few thousand years ago, there's plenty of other places in the world where something like a human or or another species of human could have lived and not ever be detected or interact with the current humans. <laughs> so, I don't think there's any reason to assume right. we could only ever have one human-like intelligence on a planet. Okay, that is interesting to think about, and, and kind of something that you mentioned too about kind of the globalization of the human species as thinking, you know, one of the the mechanisms of evolution is through migration, right? Through getting those traits spread around. I'm wondering if, uh, you know, we're getting to the point where that's not going to be necessarily a thing in the human species because we're kind of a global species now, right? We're kind of a global species, yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's not just the geographic distribution that we've achieved, but also the fact that we are hogging now. Um, a lot of the land area, a lot of the resources, um, the, in terms of the biomass, um, if you just compare um, land mammals, so, um, you know, furry animals on land, including humans. So humans are a large fraction of the biomass of land mammals, but an even larger fraction of all the animals that humans keep, so cows and sheep and pigs and so on. And, um, you know, all the cows and pigs and sheep um, and humans together outweigh all the other land mammals um, by a large factor. I don't know exactly what the factor is, but maybe it's a factor of 10. So in other words, mm-hmm. we, we, we and our associated um, symbionts, maybe, <laughs> or mutualists, right? We have really <laughs> hogged um, all of this material, all of these resources, all of this area. And so there's not a lot of room now for other species to um, to spread or evolve. Humans have developed this intelligence, the super intelligence we're talking about, but you know, our where we're at and our and our success isn't, you know, related to just, you know, one trait. Usually, you know, species aren't. So we also have, you know, opposable thumbs for building tools. So do you think that this kind of intelligence is dependent, correlated, or even uh, I guess 
I don't know, connected to that at some point, because I mean, there could be technically a super intelligence in sea life, but they don't have the means to interact with their environment in the same way that humans do. Do you think that's something that, that we may miss or that exists? So a somewhere? lot of has been written on opposable thumbs. I don't actually, I have to say, I don't quite get it. So like hamsters have opposable thumbs, um, as do most other rodents. Um, plenty mm -hmm. of animals have opposable thumbs and those, you know, there are plenty of animals that don't have thumbs per se, but for example, parrots, or for that matter, ants, uh, use their legs or, or um, hands, if you want, in combination with their mouth to achieve pretty good dexterity. So I don't see why opposable thumbs are such a big deal. And opposable thumbs are certainly not something that's unique to humans. Basically, all primates have opposable thumbs. Certainly, chimpanzees have opposable thumbs. And the invention of opposable thumbs, if you will, in evolution, not only happened many times, but also it happened a really long time before humans achieved this, what you're calling super intelligence. So I don't see how that could be connected. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I agree with you in the sense that anthropologists often like to link tool use to intelligence and somehow make this point about upright um, walking, for example, promoting the evolution of intelligence because we had our hands free and could make tools. But again, lots of animals make tools mm -hmm. and humans made tools for about 2 million years before, um, before they ever thought of actually inventing a new tool. Um, <laughs> so the tool making part and the opposable <laughs> thumbs part, neither of them are in time connected to evolving super intelligence. Um, so, this is and and you know this is the main argument against all of these natural selection um, stories about why humans evolved the big brains that they did because those things are just not connected in time to when the intelligence actually appeared. Um, they happened way before then, um, and they don't explain why only humans evolved this type of intelligence because, like I said, many other animals make tools, many other animals have opposable thumbs, or build structures that are pretty intricate in other ways. So you wouldn't say, or I guess you would say there's no reason why this level of intelligence couldn't have evolved in any other species, regardless of the physical traits? Regardless of whether they have dexterity with their hands, yes. I mean, the point is, right, I don't see right. why okay. um, this level of intelligence didn't, in fact, evolve in all the other animals that do have those physical traits, right? So you're asking me to explain mm -hmm. whether animals that don't have these physical traits could have evolved it, but... The point is, even the animals that do have these physical traits didn't evolve it. <laughs> so th there's just not any evidence that right. the physical traits are in any way linked to the intelligence. Maybe there are some minimum other requirements. You okay. know, maybe tool making is some step that's a, that's required in that chain. <laughs> um, but, you know, intelligence could take other forms. Um, that's not necessarily about making physical um, tools with your hands, right? Maybe it would be would have you know many people right. in in anthropology even argue that communication and group level sophisticated behavior group level hunting for example group hunting was crucial in promoting more intelligence i mean many other animals do group hunting even if they don't have opposable thumbs right so fish for example right so it's just not clear to me that the opposable thumbs have any special role uh with regard to intelligence 
it's really interesting to hear because from, you know, like this isn't my field, obviously. Uh, so as a person not native to this field who spends their time, like that's kind of one of those things that we hear all the time in the public, right? Like, oh, humans have imposable thumbs and that's why they're different from everybody. But I mean, it sounds like that that really isn't even a thing, right? I think it's just why we're different from dogs. <laughs> yeah, we're, you know, point. our dogs don't have opposable thumbs, and so we have to get the prickers out of their feet, and that makes us feel great. But really, <laughs> you know, if if you even th- – you're right. I mean, it's not like I don't hear this. Sure, I hear this all the time. Humans have opposable thumbs. But, you know, if you've ever had a pet hamster, you know perfectly well that they will hold stuff in their hands. They have perfectly opposable thumbs. <laughs> I just have pictures of hamsters building space stations now, and it's blowing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, they don't seem to be particularly smart, right? But I think right. the reason that they're not smart has something to do with, <laughs> with their needs for smart and not with, um, you know, with their lack or <laughs> availability right. of an and, and side story on, on gerbils and hamsters, we used to have some, and apparently, I did not know this before we go we did this, but they have this thing called uh, mass culling. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, no. You change too much bedding or whatever, something to distort their sense of smell, essentially, to become familiar, and they just kill each other until one's standing. So that seems something that's not conducive to evolving uh, for very long, but somehow they made it. Maybe it's just in captivity that they do this. but Yeah, I haven't heard about that, but just in general, this is the other thing like a lot of people seem to think that there's somehow a hierarchy of how well you're doing in the world and if you can prove that some animal is stupid in a particular way it means that they won't evolve for very long but that's just not true right i mean humans are stupid in lots of particular ways (laughs) that's very Um, true (laughs) and you know you can you can make this more or less political but just to stick with the psychology right so there's lots lots of examples of so-called irrationality so humans are irrational in very specific economic ways. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some entertaining um, TED Talks. Um, there's this one guy called Gilbert. I'm trying to think of his last his first name. Uh, maybe you should look this up <laughs> for the final version if, you, if you're going to keep me mentioning him at all. I think his name is Dan Gilbert. He has this entertaining TED Talk on um, behavioral economics ultimately, but irrationality about uh, if you had two theater tickets and you lost one, uh, versus if okay, so you have it. You have theater tickets. You go to the theater, um, and then you lose them on the way. And when you get there, the new tickets cost twenty bucks. And would you buy those? You know, would you buy the new theater tickets for twenty bucks, given that you lost the ones that you had before? And mm-hmm. most people say yes. And the alternative is um, you have you don't have the tickets yet. You think they cost twenty dollars. You go to the theater, and when you get there, it turns out they actually cost forty dollars. And a lot of people say, no, I would turn around, I wouldn't pay the $40. But the fact of the matter is, right, in both cases, you're paying $40 for the theater, and the alternative is to go home and not see the show, right? And people right. make different decisions based on the story you tell them, even though the actual economic reality is the exact same thing. Right. And there are many, many examples like that. Um, if you go into behavioral economics of, you know, where people – um, there's this other guy, Dan Ariely, who gives an entertaining TED talk about where he um, offers people a trip to Rome or a trip to Paris, and they're supposed to choose which one they like better. Um, and then he says, now I offer a trip to Rome, all expenses paid, a trip to Paris, all expenses paid, or a trip to Rome, but the coffee costs extra. If you want coffee, you're going to have to pay for it. And if if the choice is between these three alternatives, right, then more people choose Rome. But 
this makes no sense, right? Because either you like Rome better or you like Paris better. Either way, all expenses are paid and you have those two options in either scenario. But the right. fact that you have a third option that's nonsensical because it's the same thing, just less of it because you have to pay for your own coffee. <laughs> <laughs> but somehow the fact that clearly now going to Rome with coffee is superior to this inferior alternative of Rome without coffee. <laughs> in the people's minds, that Rome with coffee there. is a great deal. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, those are silly examples, right? But there's lots of examples of irrationality where humans behave in a way that really makes no sense, no matter what value system you assume they have, right? It's, this is not about mm -hmm. different people valuing different things. It's just about objectively speaking, there is no reason to behave this way. And yet beha right. people behave stupidly. And of course, there are interpersonal ways in which, you know, we are irrational. <laughs> and and so, of course, we can point to an animal behaving in what we think of as an irrational way um, and say, aha, look, this animal is stupid. But of course, this animal is adapted as we are to a particular type of world. And it's its brain is designed to deal with a particular type of situations that they expect. And if you right. take them outside of that context, if you put them into a context where the world just doesn't work the way that they normally expect, it doesn't work the way their brain is built, <laughs> or even just in the world as it always is, but there are just some situations that are more unusual or less relevant. And so our brain is maybe built to deal with the relevant and important situations correctly, even at the price of sometimes deciding in the wrong way in a less relevant situation, right? right. So our brain in general, um, super intelligent or not is not built to um, mathematically derive what mathematically is the optimal solution in every case. We have what's called heuristics, which means are they're basically rules of thumb for deciding how to solve particular problems that work well on average, and they work well on mm -hmm. average in the type of world that we expect, evolutionarily speaking. And animals are the same way, right? And so for any animal, human or not, <laughs> if you either take them outside of the world or you take these situations that normally wouldn't occur often, you can prove that they can behave in a stupid way. But that doesn't mean that they couldn't be incredibly successful evolutionarily because for evolutionary success, the only thing that matters is that they behave, behave well on average, right? That on average, right. they have a lot of offspring. And that's certainly true for hamsters. <laughs> well, if, you're, if we're talking about Syrian golden <laughs> hamsters, right? There's other hamsters yeah. that are actually endangered. <laughs> yeah so let me ask you this question and and this is an unfair question i know that coming into this but if i were to put you into a corner and force you to answer this question if we assume that this factor in the drake equation is the predominant factor of uh coming into contact with human level intelligent life do you think within the time span of the human civilization we will actually ever make any contact with that level of intelligence um I mean, I, I wish the answer was yes, because I'm a curious person. <laughs> um, but I'm very aware that that's my wish and not that this is not based on any kind of rational argument, because it's not just about that probability. So I think the probability that given that life evolved on another planet, that it would bec become as intelligent as we are, I think that probability is extremely small. But mm -hmm. to answer that question, that's not the only number we need to know. We also need to know how many such planets are there and right now the estimate is that 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 the number of such planets in our galaxy is actually huge um, so right. it turns out there are billions of what astronomers consider livable planets <laughs> in the galaxy mm -hmm. 
Um, now that's a really high number, right? Lots of them are really, really far right. away, but it's still a really high number. So even if it's a low probability, if you multiply it by a really high number, we might actually get mm -hmm. quite a lot of planets. We certainly might get a lot of planets that have life on them. Um, right. And then the other part of your question is about the length of human civilization or the duration, right? How long are we going to be around? And again, I mean, this is even worse than guess guessing um, <laughs> how likely it is that intelligence <laughs> evolved because we don't even have a single example of right. a planet losing its intelligent life, right? So at least we have one example mm -hmm. of a planet gaining intelligent life. We have zero examples of one losing it. And so mm -hmm. who knows? Is it likely that we'll have total uh you know nuclear war and live in a fallout world right? with no larger <laughs> civilization maybe but even in that you know if we're thinking of the computer game there's still intelligent life there right it might take them a while to get back right. on their feet but uh it's going to happen eventually so i don't know that the likelihood that we're going to lose intelligence is that high i actually think we'll just keep it forever okay uh, we may not, you know, it may not always go well in the sense of increasing prosperity, but um, <laughs> actually just becoming extinct altogether, I don't know how likely that is. It, it certainly hasn't happened yet. So, uh, you know, any well, number that I would say. it's definitely based on our ability to get out of the solar system, right? I mean, at some point, you know, our sun will change and that affects life, obviously. So you've got a time limit on there to get out of the our local yeah. neighborhood, so to speak. But, but re look, remember, yeah. I grew up without internet. I don't know how old you are, but a lot yeah. of people today can't even imagine that. Certainly my daughter has never seen a, a phone that wasn't a smartphone, <laughs> you know? And, right. and that's within one human generation. Uh, humans have been mm -hmm. around. We were just discussing, right? We only had human language for at most uh, maybe 200,000 years, maybe a million, right? And mm -hmm. we have about... Um, well, until the Earth gets swallowed by the sun, we have about three billion years to go, depending on how heat tolerant we, you think we can get. So, um, <laughs> you know, th that's just a totally mind-blowing time span. Um, so you write in, in the principle of it, but, you know, people don't even make predictions about technology 50 years from now. And then a million years from now, we can't imagine it. A billion years from now, I'm not sure there's even any point to speculating about it. Right. So I'm, I'm an optimist. I, I think we will leave the solar system. I think we all do well. <laughs> I think intelligence will survive. <laughs> okay. And if we live, you know, and if, if we live forever, then I think we'll eventually find that planet that has alien life on it. And whether it's intelligent or not, we'll see. <laughs> okay. So, so I'll say you're, you're modifying my question a little bit to remove the, the time limit and say, as long as we continue to exist, we will probably eventually find it. Is that an apt uh, summary? That's an apt summary. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> well, thank you very much for your time. That's all the questions that I really had. Uh, just real quick, do you want to tell us a little bit about anything that you're working on right now? Um, well, what I'm working on right now is um, if you have a colony of ants or really any group of um, relatively simple agents or even complex agents, and they're trying to work together what is the best way to divide up tasks? So if, if there are different jobs to be done um, without one person telling everybody exactly what to do, how can they um, reach what we call an optimal task allocation? So if you are living together with your family, how do you make sure the dishes get washed and the groceries get chopped for without having somebody um, order everybody what to do? 
<laughs> and this is a problem that actually occurs pretty frequently in biology and I think pretty frequently in engineering. We work with people in distributed computing, for example, who try to solve that same problem. Uh, it's also called load balancing. So you want different types of jobs to be done. You want the workers, the agents, the computers, the ants, whatever they are, to you know choose the kind of job they're going to do in such a way that at the group level, everything gets done and everybody's uh, responding to the demand for work in different tasks. Um, and that turns out to be a pretty complex problem. It's kind of like scheduling a whole bunch of different things <laughs> in parallel. So um, <laughs> okay. we're, we're trying to learn how the ants do it and then trying to learn some general principles about how to do it uh, for these other engineered systems. Excellent. If someone wanted to follow your work, what would be the best way for them to go about doing that? Um, yeah, probably, um, you know, put my name in Google Scholar every once in a while, but that's a very um, mm -hmm. sciencey way of doing it and leads you to specialized publications. <laughs> I do have a website. Um, it's socialinsectlab.arizona.edu, and everybody's welcome to click there. There's a list of public media reports, so this blog um, will be linked there and reports about our work on, uh, you know, the New Scientist or BBC or whatever will be linked there as well. Um, so that's sort of more sporadic, but there you get a more digested version of what we're doing. Okay, excellent. Well, once again, thank you very much for coming on the show. I greatly enjoyed our conversation. You know, you had some great insights, stuff thank that you. I'd never thought about. So hopefully our, our uh, listeners got some great stuff out of that too. Uh, and so I guess with that, I'll, I'll let you go and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. And you too. All right. Thanks. Bye. I don't care about the state of art Everything I care about is falling apart Don't want to hear about the new design I don't mind if I get left behind Hey everybody, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Anna Dornhouse, Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. If you were interested in any of the stuff that we talked about, which, well, I hope you were because I just did an entire show about it, be sure to check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dash of science or Twitter feed at Physicist Chris, and you can find some additional information about people that we talked about, like Stephen Gould, Jeffrey Miller, Ernst Meyer, uh, and, and everybody else that we talked about, those TED Talks. I'll try to get that all up in there so you can go check those out for yourself. But anyways, again, uh, another thank you to Dr. Dornhouse for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. I learned a lot. I think it's very interesting how we can go from discussing bees and ants to alien intelligence because, well, quite frankly, science is amazing. All right, that's all I've got for you this week. Hopefully, you'll be back next week to see what we got then. All right, catch you all later. If you enjoyed the music of the show, it's called State of the Art by Brad Sucks, which you can check out yourself at bradsucks.net.